Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV AIDS, routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. I'm joined today by Joseph Maikut, a colleague and friend here at CSIS. He's the director of the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program, which puts a big focus on geopolitics of energy, the energy transition. Joe's a PhD in atmospheric sciences and atmospheric and oceanic sciences from Princeton. He's a mathematician by training prior to that. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. You've brought a lot of energy and creativity to this program in the time you've been here. And thank you for agreeing to come here and share your thoughts on the recently concluded COP. I'm delighted to be here, Steve. I think this is a really important conversation to try and help ground what we saw in COP28, but also to draw the links between what you and your group work on and what mine and my work on, right? They're, these are inexorably global phenomena. We're in pursuit of global public goods. To the ways in which our two spheres of interest interact is, is something I'm, you and I are happy to probe in the coffee room, and I'm glad to be doing it here on the podcast as well. Thank you. So today will be less of a focus on health dimensions. We'll talk a bit about that, but what I wanted to do, we'll be doing in the course of Common Health in the coming weeks, we'll be doing a series of discussions around Dubai, around the COP, just concluded. December 13th, I think, was the closing. December 3rd was the health day. Last for about two weeks, 97,000 participants, right? 2,500 uh, industry uh, lobbyists showing <laughs> up, lots of discussion, lots of debate. It was in Dubai, hosted by the chair, Al, Al Jabbar, head of the Energy Corporation there in the UAE. It was marked by a lot of things, a lot of big and complicated moments that we'll, we're going to try and unpack here. We are going to be doing more programmatically over the course of this year and beyond on the intersection of climate and health. So what happened at the COP in that respect is very, very important. But we, Joe, what we, we, we invited you to come in because we want to set the stage and understand a bit more about what these conferences of the parties are, the genesis and history of it, how we should be thinking about it, and then talk about some of the key items, the, the commitment to a transition out of fossil fuels, mm -hmm the launch of the Loss and Damages Fund, right. the proliferation, some very interesting side initiatives around methane, steel, nuclear power, things that are very important ultimately in mitigation efforts. And then the trade show aspect of this, the fact that there's just a profusion of data and reports that come out that fill in our knowledge and sorting through all of that is a complicated and difficult thing like you might expect. And this all, this enterprise, this grand enterprise is now annualized. And so it all starts over again next fall. Yes, immediately almost. So let's start with big picture. Sure. What was the genesis of the COP? 
What's been the high point? When we look back over more than almost three decades, how do we see the big signature moments? What were those? Why do we care about this? Right. Thanks so much for having me and for asking a thesis level question to start the podcast. So the COP is formally the Conference of the Parties. And the parties there are the parties to the UN FCCC Framework Convention on Climate Change. This is the mechanism that was invented in 1992 to try and bring global efforts to what had been at the time considered a, a large global environmental problem. Mm -hmm. This was inspired by the success of the Montreal Protocol, which was the UN effort to reduce pollutants that harm the ozone layer in the 1980s. That was seen as very successful and a model upon which you would build efforts to address global climate change. The COP process has become, I would argue, something quite different. There are two elements to every- When was the first actual COP? 97? Um, I don't know which 96. one was COP one. It would be 93, 94, 95, someplace okay. in there. Okay. There's a few big ones, which we can talk about when we dive into the history, but let's, let's, go, let's start where we are and then we can kind of talk about how All we right. got here. All right. There's two elements to this now annual meeting. There's the formal negotiation. This is where the, the parties to the UN Charter get together and discuss whatever is on their agenda. This is where you see very careful crafting of language because it is a consensus process. Every party has to agree on the language that goes into these documents. So it sort of gives the casual observer a sense of what is the floor on global ambition on climate change and how do all countries agree to work on it going forward. And the parties include, there's 198 sovereign entities coming, yeah. but you also have indigenous people it's unusual in the sense that it gives it gives equal presence and visibility to very small and marginal players. It's a really it profound voice. insight, actually. Yeah. And so you could imagine a different system where large economies had incredible sway and the voice of, let's say, a small island nation, which is existentially threatened by sea level yeah. rise, would be pretty marginal. Yeah. Now, one could argue that that still is the case. But the COP process does give equal vote to both countries that produce a lot of fossil fuels and are, in, are heavily invested in today's economy and would yeah. like to see that continue, yeah. Yeah. and countries that, it's fair to say, existentially threatened by the, the long-term effects of climate change and therefore want to see very rapid emissions reductions or transfers to help them adapt. We can talk about all those issues. It is a very funny structure. It suffers a lot of critique because like any consensus model, it, slow. it's slow, <laughs> it's deliberate, and it hasn't resulted in us actually meeting the goals that we set for ourselves as of yet. The formal goal of this whole enterprise is to prevent dangerous climate change. That has evolved to keeping global temperature rise, which is currently about one and a half degrees centigrade below two degrees centigrade globally average by the end of the century. There's a lot of technical stuff that we can get into if you're interested. There's a lot to read about yeah. what those different things mean. But the long and short of it is we're already, having been working on this for 30 years, probing the boundary of what we think is pretty hazardous. And we're obviously seeing the effects of climate change yeah. all around us with increasing frequency and severity. I would say we are measuring the effects of climate change all around us with increasing severity and frequency. The COP process has actually really struggled to get countries to reduce emissions. They and, don't have authority to do that. They have yeah. declarations are non-binding. Right. 
But the evolution of the COP process has been, I think, really interesting. And that's a mm -hmm. lot of what my team worked on because there's this second element that you talked about, which is the sort of trade show aspect. Right. So you've got the formal negotiations and then you've got the fact that this issue which sits sort of uncomfortably in global politics, touches every part of the economy, is profoundly important for how we set our energy strategy, for how countries are trying to carve out roles for themselves in the future. There's a deep politics to global equity and justice issues. All that stuff attracts a ton of attention, and the COP has become a bit of a trade show for... Describe what you mean by trade show, just for our, <laughs> just for our listeners, because... I think that's a great term for characterizing the, the other side of the enterprise. Mm. So let's say you are a large multinational corporation that wants right. to build a lot of renewables around the world. The COP is a really good place to go and be able to meet with government officials, NGOs, financiers, thought leaders around the world and show off your wares. If you're an international NGO working on climate mitigation or adaptation, it's a place to go and show off the success you've had over the past year yes. to network. The sort of what I would describe as the climate constituency, which right. draws heavily on the energy industry, on the NGO world, on the international development world, on the public health world, it doesn't really have another place to get together other than these cops. And that's not a formal part of the process, but it has ended up being a sort of attractor for a lot yeah. of people who are otherwise interested in this enterprise. Yeah, and it's it's also a bit of a mosh pit. I mean, in the sense that you have very powerful global industrial entities who are deep into this. You have petrostates and many people like vi former Vice President Gore accusing the cop of being captive to the petrostates. Mm -hmm and to the industry partners of the right. metro states. But then you have very vocal and very active NGOs yep. there present in the, t right. in the mix. A whole architecture of, of, of media interests. Yeah, right? that's completely correct. And what's interesting about this, and what I think one of the things that was most interesting about COP28 is it's also turn, it's a global conversation, right? And one of the things the UAE, which was the host of this past COP, went to pains to emphasize, kind of thinking about, there's a context to this that the UAE and other Gulf countries are trying to figure out what their role is in global geopolitics. Yeah. They wanted this conversation to be a meeting point between the so-called kind of developed Western countries and the global South. The sort of developed, Which developing- Which is a tense interface. Yeah, there's a long tense history in the developing conversation around climate change, right? His, who bears historical obligation for emissions, Developing countries were were able to develop their economies on the back of an emissive, fossil fuel-heavy economy, and the by necessity, uh, global decarbonization that prevents dangerous climate change means that presently developing countries cannot do the same thing. Correct. Do they have the right to do that? Do are we preventing them from doing that? Is a Western-dominated conversation doing that? Preventing them from from developing economically? Are we willing to finance? the additional cost of developing economies in a low-carbon way. These are all big, deep political questions that have hounded this process for the 30 years that we've been working on it. And the UAE really wanted this COP to be a meeting which could build bridges between the North and the South yes. out of a sense 
I think that is rising around the world that the conversation has gotten too sort of European and American centric. You know, it's kind of like anyway, you know, the cop is a mega object. Any way you look at it, you can see capture. On the one hand, you know, you might see, well, this is being held in a, a petrostate. There's fossil fuel capture here. Industry's been invited to the table in, in new ways that are perhaps halting progress. On the other hand, people see capture by Western NGOs that are more right. concerned with climate change than they are with economic development. And the COP is the place that you can have a right. sort of, you can confront those different visions right. um, through both the negotiation process and this this kind of like conference that happens alongside. So say a bit about what have been the big signature moments, the big inflection points in the yeah. history of the COP and what those meant. Because yeah. when they met this year in Dubai in December, November, December, there was a desire, I think there was a desire, we'll circle back to assessing the UAE leadership, but I think there was a high ambition on the part of the UAE leadership to really ring the bell. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and we'll get to that question. Right. But tell our listeners a bit of like, when were those big moments that people go back and say, okay, here we had a, a step forward in right. this. There are, I would say, roughly three epochs that we need to think about. There is pre-Kyoto, mm -hmm. there's Kyoto to Paris, and then there's post-Paris. The Paris Climate Accords were signed in 2015, and they did one very important thing. They got every country in the world aligned with agreeing to a global climate target and set up a framework by which instead of the UN divvying out the emissions that each country was allowed to participate in, countries would sort of voluntarily submit to the group what they're willing to do to reduce emissions, address climate change, and it sort of tries to solve a collective action problem by voluntary commitments, right? And yes. the idea is as countries show more and more ambition, that incentivizes others to show ambition. It works a little bit like Weight Watchers, mm -hmm. right? Everybody comes back to the meeting having said, here's what I'm willing to do. There is an accountability moment and everybody tries to accelerate their goals going forward. Actually, that's a very effective model for, for addressing some issues. Although that, American obesity hasn't been fixed yet. <laughs> <laughs> Neither has climate change. That resolved what was a really big sticking point, which defined the previous epoch, and that was what is the role of developed versus developing countries, yeah. and in particular here in the United States, which was key to negotiating the Kyoto Protocol but never signed it and, and withdrew under the Bush administration, we were unwilling to commit to emissions reductions for ourselves that we weren't going to be matched by other countries, even ones that were developing at the time. This is principally China. Without that kind of buy-in from large emitting countries, the U.S. was was unwilling to commit itself to a, a more binding resolution. So you went from a world where we were trying to get everybody into a binding, common but differentiated framework yeah. to one that is non-binding but is meant to be more collective and cooperative. Mm -hmm. That is a profound difference. The Paris Agreement really did resolve issues that had hounded the mm -hmm. um, UNFCCC for the past 20 years. I think that gives you the history that we that you need. Okay, so let's circle back yeah. to what happened, what came out of Dubai. Let's talk about the commitment to transitioning. Yeah. Trans there was a commitment in the declaration. So this was a, adopted and embraced on a consensus basis by the 198 parties. Transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just 
orderly and equitable manner by 2050. That's With respect the, to national circumstances, I think is also So there. that was the capsule moment, premier capsule moment. There are others yeah. we'll talk about. But that was the preeminent few sentences yep. that sort of captured the, the what came out of Dubai. I'd like you to unpack that a bit. What did that mean? Why are we saying that was so important? Because at some level, it speaks the obvious. Right. Right? Fossil fuels cause climate change. Let's transition away from them. But it took a long time to get to this moment, and it did not happen simply out of magic. It happened with a lot of pre, a lot of preparatory actions. The UAE leadership was very fundamental to this. The pre-cooked agreement by the US and China to push this and pull the petrostates in mm -hmm. with us, very right. fundamental to this as well. So say a bit about this and whether this constitutes a pivotal moment in the history of the COP. Ooh, tough final assignment, but you're absolutely right. Since the Paris Agreement in 2015, where the agreement was to keep global temperatures below two degrees centigrade, any reasonable person who sits down and does a little bit of math figures out, okay, we're going to have to use a lot less fossil fuels. It's actually not entirely exclusive of fossil fuels, right? Because there's carbon capture and emissions controls. The bulk of the problem is unabated burning of fossil fuels. Like we were talking about earlier, because you have this consensus model, even though that's the obvious implication, not everyone's quite ready to agree that that is the obvious implication. And that was what happened at COP28, that countries, there was a, a big push from the NGO world, from Europe to say that, to say what they felt was the obvious, phasing down, phasing phase out. out, phasing out fossil fuels, exactly right, was a key part right. of the global response. We ended up in a place where uh, transitioning away from is the language that was universally acceptable. Everybody, it's, it's conditioned enough that even the most recalcitrant parties were able to accept it. Yeah. And it, it and I think it's probably clear enough that climate-oriented people can go, you know what, we feel like there's a sense of agreement and momentum here, right? Does this open the door by having this commitment to transitioning away? Right. Does that now open the door for a whole different set of conversations? I think it does a couple things. One it adds credence to the idea we need to pay a lot more attention to what this transition looks like yeah. in places that are heavily reliant on the present-day fossil fuel economy, right? And it's sort of easy to look at the UAE and say, you know, rich petrostates, they need to transition their economy. But bear in mind, my program's done a lot of work in India where you have like artisanal coal mining is an enormous employer. Right. It is the economy in like large swaths of right. India. It provides all the civil services. And so I think as much as the transition away from fossil fuels sort of makes a point about climate change, it equally makes a point that in transitioning away, it'll give a lot of people who are trying to figure out how to navigate that transition justly in an orderly fashion something to point to to say how we make this transition is also really going to matter. So if you're Guyana or you're Ghana or you're Angola or you're Azerbaijan, 
wealthy but developing an, an, an energy endowed economy. Right. But one that is a developing country in many respects, highly yeah. dependent. You're not going to send that country into poverty instantly. Yeah, and I think shutting what, down by right. So and, there's and I think what they can then they can say is like, okay, we agreed transition away, but orderly and just mean this to us, right? Yes. And that it returns us to the basics of the problem that we've already slightly touched upon, which is a lot of the political negotiation on the international sphere is who bears responsibility, who's willing to pay, how are we going to make allowances for countries which all have their own interests and their own needs working on a global problem. How do you judge this? I realize it's early days, right? The historical judgment on how important this move was yeah. is somewhere out in the future. Right. But what what's your gut tell you? Was this a big moment or was this something uh, important but not a big moment? I think it's a punctuation mark but not a but not a new paragraph. Okay. Is how I would describe it. Right. Um, post Paris, we needed to figure out what a voluntary framework would look like and how, from the outside and from within, that process would would drive progress. At Glasgow, which was two years ago now, I think we f saw for the first time that the Paris Agreement framework sets the sort of long term ambition. It provides a checkpoint and an accountability point that mostly matters in the future, but it sort of gives everybody a general sense of the prevailing wind, and then they need to go figure out how they're going to decarbonize different sectors, how we're going to deal with the different challenges of making an energy transition quickly in response to climate change or in response to climate risk. And Dubai, COP28, is a really strong punctuation mark on this sort of what I would call a, you might call a hybrid model, right? There is a formal structure that is going along where countries are negotiating, but a lot of the action is happening in these coalitions of the willing, right. governments, NGOs, and industry who are willing to tackle different parts of this problem. In that sense, I think like nothing really changes structurally after Dubai, but it is, I think the result shows us that this is the model that, that the world's going to have probably for the foreseeable future in how we're addressing climate okay. change. So you've referenced the coalition of the willing. Let's talk about those kind of side initiatives, side deals, bargains, things that were launched that were quite important that are a, a subcategory of innovation right. and partnerships that have important impacts on mitigation. Right. And they touch on that, you know, it was a very, lots of reporting on methane, on nuclear power, on steel, on clean hydrogen. Explain for us what we're talking about here. Sure. Because it seems to me that is a very important dimension of what comes out of these. And we saw some pretty significant and quite intriguing things flow from this. If there's anything that the casual observer should take from, from COP28, it's I think it's this point. A lot of how we deal with climate change, because it is so multifaceted, because it involves every industry, because it involves significant technological changes, involves different ways of financing our the global economy and its metabolism, which is energy, then these sort of coalitions of the willing, this where you have groups of interested agents, so you got to be careful about capture, but also knowledgeable agents 
putting together packages to say, here's this chunk of the problem that we think we can address together. Mm -hmm. It also tells us a little interesting political story. So let's look at an example. At COP, we sign a bunch of oil and gas companies, both national companies, so publicly owned and private companies, sign the oil and gas decarbonization charter. And this sets a variety of goals for their emissions of their operations. So not necessarily the products they sell, but the emissions that accompany oil and gas right. production, in particular methane, which is a very strong greenhouse gas that acts over a shorter lifetime than CO2. So if you want to do something now about the sort of increasing temperatures that we're going to experience over the next 30, 50 years, methane is a good target to and address. And it accounts for an ex a very significant proportion, right? Yeah, it does. I can't recall the exact number offhand, but it's a significant climate forcer of today's warming. Yes. It does not, reducing methane emissions does not solve your long-term problem. CO2 resides in the atmosphere for a very long time. Methane degrades in the atmosphere over a period of, I think, a half-life of around 12 years. The problem is if you keep adding a bunch of methane because it is a strong right. greenhouse gas forcer, it causes a lot of warming now. And so as it takes a long time to deal with CO2, the idea is you can get a lot of benefit out of addressing methane emissions today. Because this COP happened in the UAE, you got a coalition that included parties that you wouldn't have had before, mm -hmm. particularly the national oil companies. Mm -hmm. One of our affiliates wrote a, uh, his name is David Victor, he wrote a great book, Fixing the Climate, which is about how we solve these cooperative action problems internationally. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty strong critique actually of the COP process and diagnosis how he thinks it went wrong. But in that piece, he talks a lot about, you know, the need to experiment. Because when you're dealing with a profoundly difficult issue like global climate change, you're asking countries, companies to take sort of existential bets on transition and new technologies, we need to discover our way to success mm -hmm. rather than say, okay, prescribe. prescribe it. Exactly. Right. What COP gives us is a framework for when you're in the UAE, when they're the host and they're incredibly politically influential with other countries that are resource wealthy, work on that piece of the problem. In a couple of years, we're going to be in Brazil where a lot of the issues around forestry emissions and land use change are really critical. I fully expect that we will see progress in Brazil mm -hmm. on those issues. When you're in the UK, let's talk about finance. What will happen when we're in Azerbaijan? <laughs> when we're in Baku? <laughs> when we're in Baku, I think that one's going to be a little bit less of a, um, uh -huh. a resounding um, success. These seems to kind of, there seems to be sort of a beat emerging that it takes a few years for people to kind of go off and be successful and then, and then move forward. It may uh, motivate uh, Azerbaijan to strike a, some enduring peace deal with Armenia before they come to host this. Yeah, it which, may be. Otherwise, people, be wouldn't, helpful. people might not want to go, right? Which could be helpful. But I think the, the thing is, it's important to understand, is as we take this sort of, if you embrace that experimentalist approach, yes. then the, the host you have every year can be really influential in the place where that country, that presidency has a lot of sway. Yes. And since we have to work on everything, right. there's no dearth of problems for us to address, this sort of modern COP process gives us a path forward. If you're a climate warrior, it can be it can feel disappointing because we need to be doing it all. We need to be doing it really fast. Right. But if you take, you know, if you kind of accept the world as it appears to be, that this transition is something that's going to happen iteratively and over time, 
it actually it kind of helps us map out where we should put our efforts. Uh, the Loss and Damages Fund was launched at Dubai. It's going to be housed at the World Bank. Yeah. It drew a little under half a trillion dollar in pledges. The U.S. put a modest amount in, just under 18 million. EU put a heavy chunk in. The mm -hmm. U.K. put a heavy chunk in. But it's a start, right? Mm -hmm. It's a start. Now, my presumption is that do these the COP process hopefully will be one that informs and motivates countries to get more serious themselves. Countries themselves and industries are going to be the drivers of change. It's not going to be some grand global philanthropy right. that, that drives this. However, the loss and damages fund speaks to the inequity and, la and, and asymmetry of capabilities right. between the, the global south and global north broadly to oversimplify. Yeah. And so this loss and damages fund, to me, looks like a, an important pivot moment as well. What's your thoughts? I think it's an important political moment. I think that's a relatively modest level of capitalization yes. for the scale yeah. of the problem. But I think it, it that is an expression of what the UAE was trying to do bridging this north-south divide or yeah. develop, developing country divide. As you well know, for a variety of reasons, starting with pandemic response, but then kind of looking at the food crisis that followed the uh, invasion of Ukraine, developing countries feel like they're being kind of hammered, hammered. <laughs> right? And, and, not, and not being afforded the support that they need to meet any of the sustainability goals or the yeah. uh, sustainable development goals or the global ambition on climate change where a lot of what we need to do is make changes in the developing world. Right. That had to be addressed. And the UAE adopting its ambitions toward being the bridge of the North and the South found a way to get this thing off the ground. Voluntary. Yep. How the money's going to be spent is going to be a matter of negotiation. You know, like any UN or multilateral thing, it will always be up for debate. But when we were looking at going into the COP, one of the biggest risk factors we saw was actually the, the whole thing would fall apart over this north-south divide. And it's, it appears that very early in the COP process, this announcement was made to sort of table that, to table that discussion and try and move forward. These meetings, these, these annualized meetings also are a place where a lot of new data and analytic work comes forward. Mm -hmm. That's part of the trade show aspect. Right. People work hard in the lead up to this. It sets the calendar for have your new work ready to go. Right. Get it out. It's not unlike the international, the biannual international AIDS conference, which, you know, is a mega conference with 25,000 people in years past showing up. Or the, the annual all, World Bank meeting here in D.C. Yeah, all of these things tend to sort of be magnetic. They set the calendar. They pull in. So all the new science or all the new innovative work programmatically, the discoveries are, are rolled out right. here. What, what, what was of note in terms of data and analytic work that we didn't know beforehand that came forward at Dubai? That's a great question, actually. There's a few things. I, I would actually say that the things that came a note on my radar, there's an announcement there that I don't want to skip over. 
Uh, but the things that, that really were of note were an acceptance, a real a recognition through an agreement to triple global renewables capacity, yes. which actually was part of the formal negotiation, yeah. right. but also an agreement to triple global nuclear capacity right. that, again, a coalition of the willing, including the United States, contributed to. I think that one ends up being pretty important. Mm-hmm. We did some writing on our on our website about new efforts to sort of establish how we're going to do emissions accounting for mm-hmm. clean steel and steel making, which is a big part of the industrialization story in the developing world. If you need to do a lot of construction, you want to do that with cleaner steel. What counts as clean steel? How is it going to be traded? A lot of that stuff can be talked about at COP, even if it's not part of the formal negotiations. I think those were the big ones for me. I actually thought that this COP would have a lot more on what we would call direct air capture or carbon management, which is the sort of how do you, you know, can you use technology to draw CO2 out of the air and deposit it in some sort of durable media, get it out of the atmosphere where it causes climate change? That that ended up not playing a big Hmm. role. Uh, this time. It's also important to talk about what we didn't talk about. In this case, I think was there was there was some conversations around the edges or before COP about how the global trading system is going to evolve as countries are working to reduce emissions. That's a place where we're going to see a lot of future dialogues and a mm-hmm. lot of future contests. But at this COP, it didn't really reveal itself in the way I, I thought it might. Okay. Now, there was a health day, dedicated health day for the right. first time, December 3rd. We didn't organize this conversation in order to go into that in any depth, but I would like to ask you any reflections on how health came to be fit in this because it did get visibility. There was a a dedicated $1 billion in commitments. So Mm -hmm. half, you know, that's not insignificant uh, that we had a start. There was about $88 billion pledged overall in the COP towards new, new commitments. So it was a modest proportion of the overall big picture. But like we're talking about the loss and development fund, it was a start. Right. And it was a start to have it positioned there. Right. It's not always clear how health really does fit, right? We know that there's the extreme extreme heat and other natural disasters dimension. We know the sector has to be decarbonized. It accounts for, in America, for almost 8%. So it has to be decarbonized. And we know that infectious disease, as climate changes, the vectors, chikungunya, mosquito-borne infectious diseases, dengue, malaria, chikungunya, are spreading. They're becoming right. indigenized even in the United States and in southern states. So all those things are there. But this is the, – the marriage of health and climate is not, a, is not necessarily a comfortable – marriage in many respects, right? They have siloed funding streams. They have their different cultures and practices. There's a fear of losing focus by getting consumed into something much larger. Yeah, Prioritization is still a big question. So these issues are not far below the surface in any discussion of like, okay, what does this all mean? I just wanted to get your thoughts. Well, yeah. I mean, everybody wants to save the world, right? Coming at the issue from a more analytical standpoint, if climate change wasn't a fairly severe risk for human health, I'm not sure we'd be all that worried about it, right? I mean, polar bears, yes, one thing. But the fact that you're going to see continued real human challenges that gets expressed through health impacts, to me, feels like sort of 
it's a little bit like the fossil fuel conversation from earlier. It's like it's obvious, and now we're just saying it. Yeah, I think it's it's positive. I'm less concerned probably than others about the idea that this is like mission creep or distraction for two reasons. One, as we enter, you know, sort of the next the next phase of as we live in the post Paris world. The reality is we have to deal with the effects of climate change at the same time we're rapidly decarbonizing. Mm -hmm. And that pulls us from the sort of climate and energy space into a human space where we need the expertise from outside of this, this mm -hmm. area, right? Mm -hmm. Having a health presence at COP because of the trade show aspect, the global convening aspect of, of the process to me is important. The second thing is there is a lot of co-benefit is how we would describe it in the energy world to emissions mitigation that also assists in public health, mm -hmm. right? And so if you're looking at a world that needs to make investments in global public goods or in public goods generally, finding places where these two incentives are aligned, right? Closing a coal plant or moving to a more energy efficient system in a developing country also reduces your air pollution and makes people healthier. We should be looking for those opportunities instead of remaining in our silos. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. We're getting towards the end here. I want you to say a bit about UAE leadership. How do you, on the flip side of, of the COP in Dubai, how do you assess the quality and achievements of the UAE leadership here? We've got we've we've touched on this, right? But I, I'd like to circle back to say, you know, how how do you judge the value and what they were able to do? I believe the case that the UAE was making that it it takes a sort of, in this case, a Middle Eastern country, which sits in between the developed world and the developing world to help resolve some of the challenges we've long faced. Mm -hmm. So, you know, would you be able to have the same success if this conference was held in London or if it was held in Jakarta? I, I'm actually not sure. I also think that their success in bringing together the industry participants around a set of commitments, which is articulated, is clear, can be evaluated by industry and non-industry actors over the next half a decade, shouldn't be cast aside. Yes. Right. I, you know, it's like, I, you know, I don't know you want to call it a Nixon goes to China moment, but it might have taken a petrostate presidency to get that level of buy-in from the global oil and gas industry around setting targets for methane emissions, right? It's easier to do it with uh, private companies through investor pressure and all that kind of stuff. But to get the NOCs particularly on board is, is a big achievement. Lastly, the agreement in the formal text about transitioning away from fossil fuels, I, that probably did require the leadership of a, of a country like the UAE. Otherwise, you know, it's like, you know, there's so many countries that are heavily fossil fuel dependent, not just for their economies, but for almost all the services they have. You need somebody on your team to be able to make the argument like this is this yes. is the right step forward. The trick is you could easily qualify everything I just said and say it's not enough to deal with global climate change. That's a structural issue with dealing with climate change through the mechanisms that we have. So how do we take that success and how do we look at Azerbaijan? How do we look at Brazil and say, how do we make each of these presidencies accountable for success in their own domain? Thank you. Closing thought, we try and end each of these podcasts by asking our guests to just tell us what gives you the greatest hope and optimism <laughs> looking ahead. 
I mean, you're a pretty optimistic person, so I don't think this is a difficult question. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's actually easy for me to say. Climate change is a really daunting issue, and I've chosen to spend my this portion of my professional life on it. And it can be frustrating that we 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 don't have enough progress, right? That we're sort of approaching the boundary of of, of dangerous warming, and emissions are still at are still peaking, right? They haven't come down yet. Yes, last year we deployed more solar than we ever had before. We also burn more oil, killing natural gas than we ever did before. It, it can be a daunting thing. When I started on this issue, which is now 15 years ago, we regularly talked in the scientific community about global warming in 2100 of three, four, five degrees centigrade. That's not our expectation anymore. Mm-hmm. By changing economics of, of renewable power, by public policy imposition, by the fact that we are muddling our way through, leading estimates now show us looking at between two and three degrees centigrade of warming over the course of the century. That doesn't solve the problem, but it's a heck of a lot more manageable today. And all of our efforts can help push that curve further down over time. I think it's underappreciated sometimes that while, you know, you gotta keep two thoughts in your head. While we are experiencing worse and worse effects, the long-term story is getting better and better, and we want to keep that momentum on the long-term story and be in a position to address the near-term problems as well. Joe, this has been a terrific conversation, and thank you so much. Thank for you so much for time. having me. I like you, you're you're so well prepped, Steve. You know a lot about the COP process already. I know more now. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> thank so, you so much. Thank you for listening to the Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit CSIS.org.